and people just don't have their eye on the ball. They're too busy trying to generate a lead and sell a job and produce a job, and they don't really focus on the most important part of it is, which is being profitable and and knowing the price structure you got to sell at to be profitable. This is the Wealthy Contractor Podcast, brought to you by G4 Marketing. Interviews with today's top home improvement entrepreneurs about marketing, sales, money, mindset, and lifestyle. Now, here's your host, Brian Kaskavalsian. Okay, so for everybody that is out there, Charlie's been on the podcast a number of times. If you haven't done so already, you could go to Amazon for those that are watching on YouTube. I'm holding up Charlie's books. You can go to Amazon and get Charlie's new books. One is called Lessons Learned. I'm going to ask him some questions about Lessons Learned today. Lessons Learned, my journey from contractor to businessman. So if you just go type, you know, just go Charlie Gindale, G-I-N-D-E-L-E in Amazon, he will be not very hard to find. The other book is called Build It to Last. That is Charlie's memoir. And it's got his beautiful head on the cover of the book. And this is his memoir. And it's called, it's filled with just great Charlie. Charlie's great storyteller. And so this book is The Ups and Downs of Entrepreneurship. And so both of these are awesome. And Charlie is kind of retired now, but working with some contractors across the country. Any updates on anything new you've discovered without naming names, of course, but it's kind of interesting the different things you discover working with different owners. Yeah, a little update. You know, I talked in the past about, uh, you know, a lot of people putting all their, all or most of their marketing dollars into internet and social media and what I call kind of low hanging fruit stuff you definitely have to do. But a lot of people, that's all they're doing. You know, they've morphed into, you know, you work with a company and they manage your pay per click and they do SEO and you write them a check once a month or you give them a credit card and all. And, and a lot of the companies that I've been working with, you know, have all pretty much done that, but they pulled back on a lot of the other traditional marketing and, and they're seeing a real downturn in lead flow. And a couple of them that I've been working with have kind of taken my admonishments and, you know, they're diversifying their marketing portfolio and doing some direct mail and doing some events and doing other more proactive type of things and they're actually seeing an uptick in lead flow. Yeah. You know, it's it's a little more work involved and a lot of people have been lulled into, you know, you kind of put your marketing on autopilot. But the reality of it is that, you know, this other stuff works. I mean, one company I've been working with really took to heart this what I call mining your database, you know, and and reaching out to your, you know, people in your database and They've been having some pretty significant success with that. When you think about it, you know, we generate leads, names, and phone numbers all the time. Sometimes people call in, they want a price or they want a catalog or, you know, they want some general information, but they don't book an appointment. And with most companies, that stuff just goes, it vaporizes, it goes away, right? Instead of capturing that data, putting it into a database and running, assigning a recontact date, 
you know, so companies are doing that and they're, you know, they're generating appointments in business. Sometimes it's months later, you know, then there's appointments. So we, we schedule an appointment and then the appointment cancels before we run it or, you know, the people aren't home or whatever. And again, do we, do we stay on top of that? Do we manage that? Or we just let that go away? Of course, then there's ones that we go out and we meet with them, but maybe for some reason we don't give them a demo. Maybe we run out of time or maybe the complete buying party is not there. What are we doing to nurture those to get them back so we can get an appointment? And then, of course, there's the people that we do give a price to and then they'll buy. And, you know, we just kind of move on and we do we nurture that. Do we stay in touch with them? And then the fifth one really is people that do buy from us. But most of the people that buy from us don't buy everything that we have to sell or, you know, and, and we have other products or services to offer and nurturing, nurturing those customers to bring continual business. I mean, you know that from the five and the one program, but anyway, five, one customer to five, one into five, one customer into five. That's right. That's your G4 marketing. But Anyway, so this nurturing the database is a is a is a tremendous tool, and if people understand it and do it consistently, diligently, and they persevere, they'll they'll generate a lot of appointments, a lot of business for leads that they've already paid for. You know, some of these leads they paid for two, three years ago, and now the people come back today. You know, there's there's this belief that when we run when we do marketing and advertising like our marketing message is going to hit the person exactly at the right time when they're in the buying cycle to say yeah yeah but the reality of it is that doesn't happen so so what do we do you know to stay in touch with them what do we do to nurture them what do we do to remain top of mind so that you know when they're ready you know we're the company they think of yeah Anyway, so I've had some success with people working on that. Well, and it's interesting because what you were talking about, and you and I have talked about this a lot, and and, and it's it's sloppiness. I hate to say it. I hate to put it out there because we're all guilty of it. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that my business operates perfectly and every little thing is thought through and accounted for, but I would like to believe the level of sloppiness is low. But your whole book, I mean, if we look at lessons one through 10, the underlying current, obviously we won't say it. And because this is not the main podcast and, you know, maybe it's just a conversation between you and me, but one of the things you and I notice a lot in businesses is just the sloppiness, you know, perfect example. The other day, Addie's got in her mind that she wants a generator. It's hurricane season's coming. She wants to get a generator. I don't want it. She wants it. And of course, who makes all the decisions in the house? I could say, I don't want something, you know, whatever. So she reaches out to a couple of companies. One finally calls her back. The sloppiness of that phone call, she had it on speaker. I'm listening to this call. The sloppiness of that call was unbelievable to me. And what it led to, the way that they handled that call it was all going to become, it was all going to come down to the price because there was no question being asked of, well, why are you calling now? You know, what got you interested in 
whatever the solution is. What is the problem that you have right now that you're thinking about getting? And for us, it was a generator. For you, it's windows. For someone else, it's roofing. But there's no questions being asked. There was no value being built in the appointment. It was all about, well, we can come and give you an estimate and we'll be there between this time and that time. And I'm like, this is a big sale. And that's how you're handling it? Sloppy. And it's yeah. going to all come down to price. They're going to talk about in the office, they're going to talk about, well, why didn't we make money this month, this quarter, this year? Why is our, why did leads suck? You know, and it's all it's all, all it is, is just being flipping sloppy. Yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, I think, you know, digging into that, I think the reasons why that happens is number one, I think a lot of business owners are detached from that part of their business. Yeah. You know, they're, they're too busy doing other stuff. And, and if you think about it, not in all cases, but in many cases, that inbound phone call, that inbound lead, that a potential inbound sale is handled by, you know, a clerical type person that, that really has little or no training. And, you know, we almost think it's like common sense. You should know what to do. But, you know, like they say, the only thing common about common sense is it's not very common these days, you know. Right. And so there's no scripts. There's no real measuring, tracking. Training, training, role playing, you know, listen, you know, listening, listening to phone calls, coaching. I mean, and it's kind of the moment of truth, you know, when our marketing dollars either get redeemed or not, you know. And so the reality of it is because there's a lot of inefficiency and ineffectiveness there, people keep spending more money on, on leads, you know, and eventually, yeah, we book appointments and we sell some jobs, but how much stuff is going right through our, our fingertips? You know, it's gold. It's kind of gone right through to right out the window. Yeah. So Charlie, you'll love this. So I've got a client, you know who he is, very sophisticated. They are, they, now they're using AI on the sales side. That's a whole nother conversation, but they're using AI on the front end for, for those phone calls. So the AI is listening to both sides of the conversation and in real time, in real time, is delivering the right thing to say in the script, you know? And you've got, you've got companies that are competing against this company that are out there in the marketplace. How are you gonna compete when it's, well, we'll just come out between this time and that time to give you an estimate. No building value, no selling the appointment, nothing. And then you've got this other company that's all about the building, the value. We're going to set a time to be there and we are going to be there at two o'clock or we're going to be there at six o'clock. We're going to do this and we're going to do that. And it's shocking to me, the disparity. But when you look at the disparity in profitability, you know, 40 plus percent of the people, according to a, a survey done by Dave Yoho, I, we've talked about it before, 40 plus percent of companies surveyed had a net pretext profit of 3% or less. Yeah. I mean, it's, you do $5 million a year in business, you do whatever that is, 500 jobs, 400 jobs, and you net $150,000. Yeah, and sometimes that 150 is actually not what they net. It's what the owners take it exactly, out. Of the places, exactly, right. Exactly, right. So, so it's not really even a net, you know. It's a 
they're not really making money. The owner just provided a job for himself with a lot yeah. more liability and responsibility. Yeah. Uh, well, that's your big lesson number one in your in your book is by the numbers. Let's talk a little bit about that because I want I think everybody if you're in the if you are in the home improvement business and you don't have this book, this is like step by step, ten lessons of this is how you run a home improvement business. So, starting with by the numbers, let's talk a little bit about about that. Yeah, well, I mean, it that, that whole chapter came out of my personal experience of starting a, a contracting company, you know, and knowing how to do the, the work, and knowing about the product, knowing how to install it, thinking I know how to sell it, and thinking I knew how to generate leads, but never really thinking much about the the numbers of the business, key indicators, and never really having financial statements never really even knowing for the first 10 years if I was making money or not. I mean, I just, could I take money home? Could I pay my bills at home? You know, um, you know, I, I, I use the term checkbook balance management because I, I kind of made decisions day to day, week to week, month to month, best based upon how much money was in the checking book. And I never really knew if I was making money and if so, how much. And, and as a result, I wasn't making money. And I, a lot of opportunities went through my fingers and I squandered a lot of time. I mean, probably 10 years. Yeah. And, and had I been doing in the first 10 years what I learned how to do, you know, and started doing at the beginning of the second 10 years, I mean, who knows how many hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars that would have meant to me and how much further that would have accelerated my growth and, and made a difference for my business, but also made a difference for me and my family personally. Yeah. Why do we find it? Why do we as business owners, why is the tracking and the measuring and understanding of the numbers so far down the list of things that we think we need to get right? Yeah, I don't know. In retrospect, it, it baffles me. But back then, I just think we're so intent on, uh, you know, living to fight another day and just right. kind of yeah. selling the job. You know, I think we, you know, most people equate sales with success, right? So, if we're selling jobs, you know, things must be good. And if we're not selling jobs, things must be bad. But, you know, knowing are we selling the jobs at the right price, knowing what the right price to sell is, you know, there's this other thing that people think, well, you know, I, you know, there's a, there's a price or a rate in our market and, you know, you, you know, you got to be in that going range or you're never going to be successful. And the reality of it is people that know their numbers, are oblivious to that and, and they just you know this is the price i got to sell it for right and we go out there and sell it but those other people don't know what they need to sell it for and and that's kind of where i was during those first 10 years but you know when you realize too it's not what the price you have to sell it for is a byproduct of your cost of goods sold which is the material and labor and commissions to go into the job but then, it, and then what's left over is your gross profit, but everything's a factor of time. So the gross profit that you make in a 30 day period has to be equal to or greater than the overhead to run the business in that 30 day period. If it's even, you break even. If it's less, you lose money. If it's greater, you make money. And people don't, don't get that. They don't get the overhead part of it and, and the, the fixed expenses that go into the business. And then, 
you know, knowing that you got to, you know, sell enough work at the right gross profit that you can sell it and produce it in that 30 day period or that quarterly period or that annual period to make money. And people just don't have their eye on the ball. They're too busy trying to generate a lead and sell a job and produce a job. And they don't really focus on the most important part of it is, which is, you know, being profitable and, and, and knowing the price structure you got to sell at to be profitable. Yeah. And then a lot of people, even when they're confronted with the evidence, you know, they deny it. They, they try to make up some alibi or some excuse, but it's, it's, you know, the numbers are irrefutable. Yeah. You know, it's, it's also, I think a big question of value. Like I, I think that a lot of business owners don't understand or they underestimate the value that they provide to the marketplace. You know, as entrepreneurs, we're basically solving problems for profit. And if you're out there improving somebody's home, first off, it is one of the hardest jobs out there. I mean, you know, you would talk about window replacements and get it in and out in a day or two days at the at the most. But that is a difficult job. There are so many moving parts. You got to get the old window out properly so you don't break a whole bunch of crap. You got to get the the window in the right way. You've got to seal it the right way. You got to make sure you stay clean. I mean, there's so many parts of this that are underestimated in terms of value. And I think that they just, a lot of business owners think, well, I can't get that much well then make yourself more valuable and they but they don't know how and i my contention is if you do what you say you're going to do and you do it on time and you do it within budget you've got that alone is value add to that you've got a real office you've got somebody there that's going to answer the phone and answer it and anyway i can go down the whole list yeah. it becomes a value proposition too first though in the head of the owner is like, I am a valuable part of my community. I deserve to make a profit. And at some point, they need to make the decision that I'm going to pick up a book. And there's, I don't think there's any excuses anymore. I mean, there's stuff on flipping YouTube that you can go and look at for free. You could come to Accelerate Live, spend a ridiculously cheap amount of money for two days to listen to you talk about how to structure your, your business for success. So listen to Scott Berman, Mark Curry, Johnny, all my speakers at Accelerate and learn the structure and the, and, the, and the things. And you're right, even people that are brought to it will come up with, as you said, I like that, you said they'll come up with an alibi or an excuse. Yeah. Builder Prime is changing the game for home improvement contractors. Imagine having everything you need to help your business grow in one place. CRM, estimating marketing automation with SMS, production management software, and now, call center dialer integration, all wrapped into one easy to use package. And it's never been easier to switch CRMs. Hundreds of contractors trust Builder Prime to grow their businesses with powerful reporting tools to see which leads are making money, which sales reps are the top performers and where to optimize for the greatest impact. We're talking about winning more jobs, boosting productivity 
and delighting your customers. Are you ready to fuel your business growth even faster without all the daily frustrations of your current tech stack? You owe it to yourself, your team, and your business to learn why everyone is switching over to Builder Prime, the only true does-it-all CRM for home improvement contractors. Head over to BuilderPrime.com and request a personalized demo with an expert today. Yeah, they're in denial. They're they're denying yeah. what's obvious, and and it's unfortunate, but it's definitely a, something that I think prevails for a large part in the home improvement business and the remodeling business. People know the tricks of the trade. You know, everybody or what's the old saying? Everybody wants to learn the tricks of the trade, but no one wants to learn the trade. Yeah. And the trade is how to make money. You know, how to how to monetize the business that we have. You know, the other thing too is that I I think. In, in most of these businesses, there's an inordinate amount of focus on the tangible product that we sell. I don't care if it's roofing, siding, kitchen cabinets, windows, doors, you know, you, you pick, you know, gutter guards, you pick the product. And there's, and because and it's tangible, people can touch it and we can talk about why this is better than that or whatever. But the thing is, you know, the, the things we're selling are not on a shelf in a warehouse and people just pull up and say, I want that. And then they put it in their car and they take it home and they plug it in or turn it on or whatever, because the things that we sell are really dreams. They don't exist until we get involved, give the customer the benefit of our knowledge and expertise. And and then we got to go out and, and build that dream. We got to make that dream happen. And too many people focus on the tangible and they don't focus on the, on the non-tangible part of the transaction. And that's contractors that are selling it and homeowners that are buying it. And I think one way to really build that value that you talked about is for contractors to be more aware of the non-tangible part of the job. Yeah. And that's the expertise, the knowledge, the design, the measuring, the facilitating having the right people in the right place to produce the job get it done in a timely manner not destroy the property leave it at least as clean as we found it and have it be a great experience for the customer and that's the thing that i mean most most good contractors do that but i don't think they emphasize that or focus on that or put value into that and so the homeowner assumes well a roof is a roof is a roof and a window is a window is a window and 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 we as contractors fall into that. So what do we do? Then we wind up competing on price. Yeah, you know, and and that and that's a slippery slope, and it's a very quick spiral down. Well, and the ironic thing is, is that when you're competing on price, and it's you know, it's all about the money, it's all about the price. What ends up happening is you don't have enough money to do all of the things that you need to do in order to be a valuable service provider, and then you start to become the contractor that everybody's talking crap about because you can't get to the, you can't get there on time. You can't be your word because you're so busy chasing after the next dollar so that you could pay this bill so that they'll release your windows. So you can go install this job so you can make payroll on Friday. So now it's not about the customer anymore. Now it's all about I need to get, you know, however many dollars in here just so I can make payroll, just so, like you said earlier, fight to live, you know, live to fight another day. But 
charge more, make the money you need to make, put the people in place that you need, put the processes in place and make money with what you're doing. Yeah. You know, that's, and that's unfortunately what happens. And, and, and I, and I've seen some people that, you know, have, you know, lost hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, they've gone bankrupt. They've, you know, they've, you know, and, and a lot of people in a company goes down, a lot of other people go down, you know, employees go down, their families, suppliers, vendors, you know, and, you know, and, and I've actually had a competitor in my marketplace that did that. And then, you know, they, they resurrected themselves and they went back into business and they duplicated all the same things again, all you know, it's like, like hitting your thumb with a hammer once. Okay. But I don't have to keep doing it to know that it hurts. It's painful. Charlie, was it, is it in lessons learned or build it to last when you actually listed out all of your competitors from 10 years ago or 12 years yeah, ago? It's in, oh, yeah. it's, in, it's in lessons learned. Lessons learned. I, yeah. I remember, you know, Orange County Register, you and I have talked about this, the Orange County Register, every Saturday in the home and garden section, yeah. it was 80% windows. At least that's how it seemed. And yeah. it was pages and pages and pages. Yeah. And here they are. Here they are, all the companies that Charlie competed against. God, I believe there's 35 companies listed there. Yeah, and these were all companies that you know I competed with in 2008. Yeah, in that time range. Now recession came, and then you know not everybody made it out of the recession. But even those that made it out of the recession, now here we are, 15 years later, 35 companies that are gone. Gone. I mean, that's thir- at least 35 owners. Maybe there were multiple owners. That's 35 families. Yeah. How about all the employees? And, and they'll have it, you know, and, and I mean, so that 35 probably equals, you know, 150, 250 families or more. Yeah. Plus the vendors and suppliers. And then here's the other thing. What about all the homeowners that bought jobs from those companies? Yeah. You know, this past winter, we had a, you know, like a hundred year rains, you know, and I know there were windows and doors all over Orange County leaking. And what do you do when you call that company that, you know, sold you a job in 2009 or 2012? And we're sorry, the number you called is no longer in service, you know? And, yeah. and what do you do? Terrible. Yeah. You terrible. Know? So, I mean, and, and I can tell you that every one of those companies, there was, there was a couple of companies that were, they they kind of knew how to run a business. They went out of business for other reasons, but most of them, but every one of them there, I was more expensive than every one just, of those companies. Every yeah, one. I was just going to say, it, it couldn't be about price yeah. because the one that survived was the most expensive of all of them. Yeah. yeah there I mean, might be you, connection there. There might be connection there. It might be. <laughs> yeah. So it's a shame, you know, but people went out of business and I knew, I knew some people and they, you know, they, moved out of the area they you know they were embarrassed you know they you know whatever there's a, every every situation has a different story but uh they, you know one of them a union guy came in and got into the business and oh. and when and when that added cost of overhead that the union added they, they couldn't afford to stay in business yeah. you know so but most of them it was just all price and it was and it was and secondarily too i think a lot of it was they weren't and in chapter three in the book, I talk about the most essential part of the business is marketing. Yeah. 
And a lot of these companies were not really good marketers. Yeah. I mean, you know, they ran ads and they generated leads, but they weren't really good marketing is more than just that, you know, and, 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 and marketing is picking your place in the market and, and, and dominating that place in the market. And, and a lot of them weren't really good at that either. So yeah. again, they were just focused on generating the leads, selling the job and not didn't know the numbers of the business. And, you know, you lose a little bit on every job eventually it catches up to you. Yeah, it catches up. Yeah. Well, and again, it's, you know, it's, there's, there's some sloppiness there and, you know, I, th- I say it all the time, you know, your book is, is a practical kind of a how to with these 10 lessons. My seven secrets book is really about the thinking and the mindsets the why. to be successful in business. Yeah. And, the and and you need both and i think a lot of people are looking for the strategies and tactics and they're looking for an easy button but knowing you for as long as i've known you one thing that i know about you is you've never ever stopped learning including right now when you when you teach all of this and you teach people how to be successful, but you are still a great student. And I think that owners need to get out of the grind of the business, going and installing, selling, and they need to go lock themselves away somewhere and go learn about business. And I, I really think it's, it's like 90% mindset and it's 10% skill set. And I, I've watched it. I've seen you do this. And I've seen all of you guys do this. I did it. You know, I had to change what was going on up here to go from being broke and losing everything and not running a a good business to, okay, well, now what do I need to do to do it the right way? Somebody asked me yesterday, well, what was the difference? You were bankrupt in 2010, and then you built this company and you became whatever you became. And so what's the difference? And I said, you know, it was a very simplistic answer, but it was, well, I learned, you know, you learn two sides. You learn what the right things are to do and you learn the wrong things there are to do. And the degree to which you can compensate for those and, you know, instead of doing the wrong things, try and do the right things and learn from others that are doing the right things. That's how you go and you do it. Yeah, it was think, a simplistic answer because, quite frankly, I didn't want to go into the real answer, but you know, which was not being sloppy, knowing all the numbers and blah blah, all the things you talk about in your book, all the things I talk about in Seven Secrets. Yeah, I I, I think if if you live forever, maybe eventually you figure it all out, right? But, yeah, but none of us live forever, and and so if we can compress our learning curves. Yeah. And learn lessons quicker, easier, smarter. And and the one way to do that is learn from other people's experiences. And you know, and that's reading books, it's going to seminars, it's listening to podcasts, it's it's doing all of that stuff. But you know, I, I said it accelerate, and I've said this numerous times since then in conversations with people. And I don't know that I have any superpowers, but if I do have a superpower, it's it's implementation. So we we can listen to podcasts, we can read books, we can go to seminars and conferences. But a lot of people do that 
And it's like, just by going there, like something's going to happen to you. Well, it doesn't work that way. You know, you got to, you got to put stuff into action. You got to take action. You have to implement. Yeah. Or some people also, I think they wait till it's all figured out. They wait till they get it perfect. And the most important thing is not to get it perfect. The most Mm -hmm. important thing is just to get it going, you know, and and, and then learning along the way and, and being totally immersed in what you're doing and, and, and look at, the feedback you get and and then not try to fight it but but you know tweak it and refine it but but some people like i said i think they think going to a conference or reading a book is going to make a difference well it will if if you take the lessons that you learn and you implement them but if you don't you know then they're just lessons but so that's why i think the book i titled the book lessons learned not lessons but lessons learned you know yeah because if you don't learn them and, and learning them means you implemented them, you know, you, you, you get, you, you grew, you grew from that, you know, you didn't, yeah. you're not the same person you were before as you are after. And I mean, that's, I think how you make progress and, and hopefully you compress that learning curve to the point where, you know, you can look back and say, boy, I, I, like I said, I'm constantly amazed at how stupid I was. And that includes yesterday, you know, because I do learn every day. Yeah. And I got two new books here that I'm reading. That, that I just, you know, one's on marketing and one's on growing the business. And, uh, you know, I might get 10 ideas out of that. I might get one idea, you know, and I yeah. use it now to share with other people that I, that I work with and hopefully be able to pat them on the back and kick them in the butt at the same time. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about some fun stuff as we wrap up here. So last week or the week before, if all of you listening go to Charlie's website, his name, charliegindel.com, G-I-N-D-E-L-E.com, and you go to a tab called My Cars, you're going to see some cool stuff there. So since then, have we have we bought any new cars, Charlie? Not, well, it's only May 8th, so uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I haven't bought any in the last 30 days. 30 days, Okay. And the last last cars you bought, didn't you buy them as as a pair? I bought two of them. Yeah, I bought uh, a 1991 Corvette ZR1 and a 2009 Corvette ZR1, which were you know like the high performance uh, yes versions of a Corvette that they made. So as we were going through and putting the cars, by the way, guys, go check. He has got the coolest car collection. Well, you can go there and you can see up uh, my favorite, I think, I think my favorite is still the the 63 split window Corvette. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to going for a ride when I'm, when I'm there with you next month. But are you working on, I, I thought about, I, I was looking as we were putting the descriptions of the cars. Are you trying to get a Corvette from every generation? Is that what you're working on? Yeah, I'd like to get one. I have. I don't have a, a first generation, and I don't have a fifth generation. Okay. The fifth generation is easy to get. I mean, and they're not that expensive. I just, you know, I have a couple that I would get if I had room to put them in. But yeah, the first generation, you know, which was from '53 to '62, you know, I, I like the, the early ones '53, '54, '55. But then I like the 57 58 59 yeah. i'll get one of those but I, it's just got to be the right one and yeah but ultimately i'd have one from each of the eight generations of corvettes yeah 
So right now you're only missing two, though. You're missing one and five. Yeah, generations one and five. And like yeah. I said, the fives are easy to get. I could. Yeah. Is that, are those the like the eighties, the plastic ones? They were ninety-seven to two thousand and four. Seven to two thousand and four. It was okay. the last. It was the. It was the last generation that had the flip-up headlights. Oh, okay. All right. The sixth, the sixth generation, seventh generation, and eighth generation. You know, the headlights are visible. You know, but yeah. from uh, when they come out with the second generation in '63, which was the, the the first year of the Stingray, from then up till 2005, they all had uh, you know hidden hidden headlights. Hidden, yeah. But yeah, I'd, so yeah, I want to get one from each generation. I will at, at some point in time. It's not. Yeah. A, I got I got the ones I wanted to get that are the hardest ones to get. I think you know yeah. the ones that I think are have the most intrinsic value and, and will appreciate over time. And and to me, they were, you know, part of my life growing up. And uh, yeah, well, you know, what's interesting about the first generation is that it goes from that. I mean, the 53 was just such a beautiful, just a beautiful car. And I mean, the whole generation is, but it got progressively, I don't know how to say it, like tougher, meaner. You know, yeah. so by the time it got to the late 50s, early 60s, it was like the 53, but it was much, it was meaner. Well, yeah, the truth be known that, you know, the first, the 53, they made 300 of them and they had trouble selling them. Yeah. You know, and, you know, after the Second World War, a lot of people came back from the war and, you know, they were in Europe and the Europeans had a lot of small sports cars right so America really didn't have a sports car back then and they uh you know that so the General Motors came up with that concept but it was a it was underpowered it was like 150 horsepower oh wow I didn't know that a six-cylinder they called it a blue flame engine and you know but it was an open top you know roadster car it only came as a roadster and there was wasn't even a hard top for it. it had a canvas top with like windows like plastic windows you had to snap into place you know but but you know they're if you get one of those now one of those first 300 that you can document i mean that's a probably a two hundred thousand dollar car yeah it's beautiful beautiful machine though they couldn't get you know they had trouble giving away early on crazy you know they they actually thought that they built the first ones they made in a hand assembled them in flint michigan and then they built this factory in St. Louis to kind of mass produce them, right? And the goal was to make sell ten thousand a year. But they couldn't sell ten thousand a year for like you know seven or eight years. You know, just the, wow. wasn't there wasn't the demand, or people didn't understand it. And then they start putting you know bigger engines in them, and they went to the V eight, and and it became you know a little more in vogue and a little more aspirational. Yeah. Did you get the lifts in? What's that? The lifts. Did you get the yeah. lifts? Yeah. I got, I got four of them. Yeah. Oh, you got four. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, worked out really well. All right. So do you have how many? Do you have room for more now? How many more? No, I've got eleven here in uh, the worldwide headquarters, and I have yeah. seven at home. So. Yeah. So you're going to need either a bigger worldwide headquarters. You know. I think if you do like a museum or something, there's some sort of tax tax break that you can get. 
and, you know, California, you need every tax break you can get. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. They keep finding ways to take it from us. Oh, God, yes. So. All right. Well, Charlie, thank you. And for those of you out there, again, go get Charlie's books, Lessons Learned, and Build It to Last. Go to Amazon, and you can get them there. And I guess we'll be talking again soon. Maybe we'll do another little video from the Worldwide Headquarters when I'm there or while we're driving around. That might be kind of fun. We'll do a podcast. Hey, we'll do like the Jerry Seinfeld, comedians and cars getting coffee. We'll do contractors and cars getting getting fireball. There you go. Or Tennessee fire. Tennessee cars getting Tennessee fire. That'll be a winner. That'll be be our show. All right. right, Thank you. Take care. Have a great day. You too. Bye now. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Wealthy Contractor Podcast. Let me ask you, did it help you look at your business in a different way? Did it spark an idea or ideas that you hadn't thought of before? Do you have a list of action items that you can take and implement into your business or your life today? I really hope so. If it did, I'd like to ask you a favor. Would you leave a five-star review of the podcast? By doing so, you'll help other contractors find the podcast more easily so that we can help them achieve more success, wealth, and freedom. And before you go, make sure you subscribe to the Wealthy Contractor Podcast so you get access to the latest episodes as soon as they're available. We're always striving to provide you with great content so you don't want to miss what's coming up. In fact, if you haven't already, make sure you go to thewealthycontractor.com and get your free copy of my latest book, The Seven Secrets to Becoming a Wealthy Contractor. Just pay shipping and handling, and I'll take care of the cost of the book. So until next time, this is Brian Cascavalsia.